In May, the Filipinos will go to the polls to elect a new president, saying goodbye to Rodrigo Duterte. Presidential hopefuls will be using what Filipinos call political campaign jingles, a tradition that's been going since 1953. But did this tradition start because of the secret pop aspirations of a CIA officer? The National has seen remarkable evidence that this is the case. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Robert Tollest, and today we're looking at the strange story of how the CIA started a tradition of political pop campaign songs in the Philippines. Before we start, please subscribe to Beyond the Headlines to get all the latest episodes. While most people probably associate election campaign rallies with an existing song, think of Bill Clinton's use of Don't Stop by Fleetwood Mac, or more recently, the Biden-Harris campaign's use of Curtis Mayfield's Move On Up as their 2020 anthem, in the Philippines, it's a bit different. Original pop songs are commissioned by campaign teams, often featuring lyrics about how a candidate is going to smash corruption or boost the economy. Many are forgotten once the campaign ends. But we've uncovered strong evidence this long-standing Filipino tradition was started by a CIA officer called Edward Lansdale in 1953. At the time, a popular Mambo song with characteristic jazzy Cuban rhythms could be heard across Manila. Railing against widespread corruption, the song Magsaysay Mambo called on Filipinos to vote for Ramon Magsaysay, who was Defense Secretary at the time. Joe Norandane, now 82, was just 14 at the time, but already had a job proofreading a propaganda magazine called Free Philippines. The publication was produced with covert US funding by Lansdale and Joan's father, a former journalist called Johnny Orendane. Everyone was singing it in the mountaintops, in the barrios, in the provinces, in the cities. Everyone was singing it just because it was a very catchy song and because Filipinos are highly musical. So, um, well, then, of course, that helped Magsaysay a lot. Magsaysay was a young candidate known for campaigning in impoverished areas, with a laid-back sense of style and a love of dancing. He also led a successful campaign against communist insurgents, known as the Hook Rebellion. Unsurprisingly, given the context of the US versus Soviet Cold War, it was that campaign against the communists that caught Washington's attention. Astonishingly, Lansdale claimed to have helped write Magsaysay Mambo, kick-starting a decades-long tradition of political pop in the Philippines. At the time, the agency had just set up what was known as the Congress for Cultural Freedom, formed in 1950. This organisation was a network of artists, writers and musicians across 35 countries, the vast majority of whom had no idea they were working for a CIA influence operation to counter the cultural appeal of socialism. Many unwittingly contributed to CIA-funded concerts, art exhibitions, and a key part of the effort involved music. Some of the art and literature world's biggest names were unwitting contributors, including the famous author Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who wrote a piece for the Congress for Cultural Freedom-funded Mundo Nuevo magazine. Professor Giles Scott Smith is a professor of diplomatic history at Leiden University in the Netherlands. He says the Congress for Cultural Freedom extended the Cold War beyond military power. This was not just a clash of two nuclear weapon states. But it was also a clash of cultures, of social systems, a clash of two systems that were trying to map out the future for everybody and offer images and ideas of the future, of a better future. 
for everybody, be that a capitalist democratic future or uh, some kind of communist collectivist future. So if you think of the Cold War in those terms as a, as a battle of ideas, then the whole cultural realm from popular culture, so movies, right through to things like cartoons, and then high culture, so theater, art, literature, all of that was brought into this, this extensive uh, global-wide battle of ideas. Max Isai Mambo appears to have just been one small part of this huge global battle of ideas. The song was in the moment. That year, Tito Puente, a Puerto Rican mambo singer, played Manila amid a post-war Latin jazz craze that swept the Philippines. In his personal letters and communications with the Pentagon, now at the Hoover Institute Library in Stanford, Lansdale makes references to help writing Max Isai Mambo and planning its distribution. His claim is described in Max Boot's biography of the spy, a road not taken. But the book doesn't go into detail as to what actually happened with the song. The National has seen documents that show how the CIA hedged bets, distributing not just one, but two songs for Mag Say. The records were likely pressed in Manila, rather than smuggled into the country. There are two master records, one for Mag Say March, the other for Mag Say Mambo, the now declassified CIA cable says. These are to be sent to a recording company in the United States, in order that a stamper be made out of them, the cable continues. A stamper is a negative impression of the master disc for mass production of vinyl records. The cable continues, saying the record's master disc can be reproduced by any recording company here, referring to the Philippines. Officially, the Mambo hit was written by Raul Manglapus, campaign manager for Mag Say and future foreign minister, who moonlighted as a jazz pianist. I called it the Mag Say Mambo, and it was very popular he told the New York Times in 1974. Manglapus worked closely with Johnny Orendane, the father of Joan Orendane, who we heard from near the beginning of the podcast. Johnny was a political press officer in Manila who worked with Lansdale, becoming a CIA agent and key anti-communist ally of the Americans in Southeast Asia. What is surprising is that to many, the work of Lansdale, Orendane and the wider network of CIA covert influence and subversion operations were not always seen as unwelcome meddling or colonialism. This was especially the case in Manila, where the World War II Japanese occupation is thought to have killed at least 100,000 people in 1945 alone. For many Filipinos, Americans were welcomed back to the former U.S. colony as liberators. The Filipinos really loved the Americans, okay? At that point, at that point. Never blamed the Americans for our being in a war not of our making and regarded Americans as heroes. So Lansdale entered the picture in 1945, just at the right time. And that's when he met my father. You know, life was simple in the Philippines in those days. Nobody really knew what the CIA was. I just knew because I kept eavesdropping on their conversations. At the time of the Magsaysay Mambo, the CIA and the U.S. State Department were developing a vast web of cultural influence operations but following on from propaganda efforts during World War II, these efforts may have seemed normal to many people. As an example, the Jazz Ambassadors was one program the Americans were very open about, using famous jazz musicians including Duke Ellington to promote the image of the US. Unlike Lansdale's efforts with Mag Say Mambo or the Congress for Cultural Freedom, Professor Giles Scott Smith explains the Jazz Ambassadors was a completely public effort. The Jazz Ambassadors is often 
wheeled out as one of the great efforts at, at cultural diplomacy in the Cold War, which it was. The Soviet Union had the Bolshoi Ballet. It had tremendous orchestras. It, it, it could lay down a pretty impressive set of high cultural performers, which it did. And, and on the American side, there was an awareness that this had to be matched with something in turn. So what are the key elements of American culture that are appealing, that will offer a different image of America, an unexpected image of America, that will put forward spokespeople for America one would not normally expect to see or hear. And jazz, of course, was just number one. It was perfect. It was involving African-Americans who were faced with uh, a segregated society in the United States, but uh, these wonderful jazz artists who were, you know, very much at the cutting edge of their field would never expect to be sent abroad as representatives of a nation which uh, domestically didn't accept them as full citizens. So for the jazz performers like Duke Ellington, it was a wonderful chance to get exposure, to, be, to literally play to audiences around the world. And then, of course, you had the covert element. And both sides were searching for ways to influence culture without actually saying that they were influencing culture, as if it was spontaneous, as if it was autonomous, and as if it was reflecting the, the interests of uh, people themselves. While Lansdale actually helped write Magsaysay Mambo, or whether he just helped distribute it, it's clear that this covert effort had a genuine appeal to Filipinos. And, along with propaganda and PR efforts from Johnny Orendane, it worked spectacularly, with Magsaysay winning a landslide victory. This won Lansdale many accolades, and he'd soon be called on to fix the next pressing foreign policy problems, being asked to come up with new, cunning plans. In South Vietnam, he joined Dane to open health clinics in rural areas, even recruiting a well-known Vietnamese folk singer to spread pro-government propaganda and helping organise South Vietnam's 1966 national election. He brought some friends with him to Vietnam. They started Operation Brotherhood, which was Filipino nurses, doctors, dentists, optometrists worked in the countryside in southern Vietnam. But Lansdale's star eventually diminished. He was made a scapegoat for a failed plot to overthrow Fidel Castro and became bitterly disillusioned with the course of the Vietnam War, which soon relied more on napalm bombs than health clinics and so-called soft power. So that leaves his work with Magsai Sai as his lasting legacy. But did the song actually lead to the election win? I think he would have won anyway, but of course... This was a landslide, and maybe that's why they also called Lansdale, uh, Landslide Lansdale. <laughs> but um, I would certainly have won anyway without the mambo, you know. But every little bit helped. The mambo, Maksaisai helped in a big way. The Free Philippines newspaper helped in a small way. But I think Magsaysay would certainly have won anyway. A part of Magsaysay's appeal was his common touch and willingness to campaign in some of the poorest, remote and dangerous communities. Unlike his rival, the incumbent, Alpidio Carino, who was ageing and unable to campaign as energetically. Worse for Carino, Magsaysay showed interest in dealing with the underlying causes of the communist rebellion. By contrast, US State Department cables from the time described widespread resentment at Carino, who was seen as supporting the wealthy landowner classes. 
Joan Orendane recalls a humble president who invited the public into his palace and preferred to nap on the floor rather than stay in luxury surroundings. He would go have a nap at either Uncle Ed's house or at our house. And he liked to sleep on the living room floor because, it, because we had cool wooden floors. So I almost stepped on him one day running across the living room. And there he was, you know, just crawled out on the living room floor having a nap. So that, that's the kind of guy he was. Very simple, very attractive personality for being such a simple guy. No heirs, no nothing. Very unpresidential, in fact, which the people loved, which the people loved. The common people did not equate Magsaysay as an American creation. Magsaysay is now well-remembered in the Philippines, but had little time to build a lasting legacy, dying in a plane crash in 1957. An upcoming Filipino politician, Ferdinand Marcos, would soon put an end to political pop campaign songs, taking over the country between 1972 and 1986, and, with US support, running a kleptocracy that devastated the Philippine economy. But when democracy returned to the Philippines, so did jingles. As mass protests erupted, calling for free elections in 1986, the Magsaysay Mambo was revived as a protest anthem due to its lyrics against corruption, and this time, the corruption of Ferdinand Marcos, who eventually stepped down. Campaign jingles have been a staple of the elections ever since, with former boxer Manny Pacquiao and Vice President Lenny Robredo both fielding pop songs for May's national vote. But if the CIA or a foreign power wanted to back a candidate with a new, secretly written pop song, would it work now? Joe Norandane is unconvinced. Not really, because none of them are really catchy. And also, the presidential field now is so muddled because there are five or six candidates, including a son of Marcos, a dictator, and all the money they stole he's using now for his campaign. So it's very muddled now. And I can't think of any candidate who had as catchy a tune as much as I did. I mean, all the tunes since then, if there have been a few, but none of them are memorable. You've been listening to Beyond the Headlines. I've been your host, Robert Tullist. Thanks this week to Joe Norandane and Professor Giles Scott-Smith. This week's episode was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan, with additional assistance from Hugh Wilford. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe. And if you have time, we'd really appreciate a review.